All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. We are um, today starting a new series, and I'm always excited about starting a new series. And I'm going to be particularly excited about this one because it's going to last probably throughout the entire year. So, um, yeah, we're going to start a journey, and I'm excited about it. Um, I thought today what I would do is I want to start out by reading uh, a story from the Bible, okay? Pretty good idea to, to just say God's words. Uh, this is a story you're very familiar with. Uh, it's also one that um, it's going to take about 10 minutes, and it's not going to be on the screen, so feel free to just close your eyes. Don't fall asleep, okay? Close your eyes and just let God's words soak over you. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. In him he has set a tent for the sun. Serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. And the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast in the field. On your belly you shall go and shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But when he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking him with the scribes and elders said he saved others, yet he cannot save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he'll have him, for he said, I am the son of God. And it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light faded. 
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And at the beginning of Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes, said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go to heaven. But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying his power. And he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those the Lord calls. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven and earth will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather the elect from the four winds 
and from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that date and hour, no one knows. For as the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of man. Then two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the meal. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth's distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Sky vanished like a scroll and is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who can stand? Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated at the throne a scroll written, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and the seven seals." Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and began to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth and the first heaven had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers with his heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their proportion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding fruit each month. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light for the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of all spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And Jesus said, and behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I didn't read to you from God's or a story in God's word. I read to you the story of God's word. Every word straight from scripture. Every word outlining a theme and a plan that runs from Genesis to Revelation. A plan to redeem us, to bring us home, and to take us out of this fallen world. Now we have learned in the scriptures that God has a plan, and he had a plan from the very beginning. From the moment he created us, he had a plan to save and redeem us. And it's important that we understand that every word I just read is straight from God to us. Not one word's mine. It's God's plan outlined in series, in sequence, and we could have added a whole lot more. But the reality is we are now part of the story. We were chosen for this time. God could have created us and put us here at any time. He chose now. We're on this planet for a short time. We, we're here and, and we're essentially in time holy warriors for Christ. Now that may sound like weird, freaked out, but the reality is we're here. God put us here to carry a message in the end times of his truth. We're not from here anymore, we've been reborn, we're spiritual, but we were sent here for this time. We fit into this story today just like everybody in that story in the past. It's all part of the whole story. Our events in this world today are just as foreshadowed as the events of the Bible in the Old Testament. We're living out big time prophecy every single day that we walk on this planet. We are closer to Jesus' return than any human has ever been in this moment. Yet those who don't know the story, those who don't know Jesus, those who don't know about his promises, they don't know about his mission, they wander from event to event, news show to news show, asking what in the world is going on? Israel, Palestine, the Gaza Strip, Hamas, ISIS, the Taliban, 
Turkey, Syria, Iraq, all moving in different directions towards chaos. Iran, nuclear capability, North Korea, China, Russia, Ukraine, Turkey. What is going on? You see them every day on the news with this wide-eyed stare going, I don't know what's happening in my world. Everything seems crazy. Earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, back-to-back hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, Ebola, COVID. You can feel it, can't you? These times are not normal times. It seems we're headed to something, something big, something global, something historic, something oddly final, and everybody kind of knows it. Even the people who don't know what's going on have a sense of impending doom, like, like this just can't continue. Something seems that it will start, and and it seems like it's going to start in the Middle East, doesn't it? It's like we're all on a moving sidewalk towards something catastrophic. Preppers prepare. Hollywood speculates. Armageddon, Wall-E, Contagion, Annihilation. This is the end. Every many movies about where we could possibly be headed, how the end would come. Not a lot of debate about if the end is coming, it's how is it going to come? Virus gone bad, a meteor strike, an exploding sunspot, a global meltdown, aliens, nuclear destruction, zombies, a pandemic. There are thousands of predictions of how it could happen. But it seems odd that so many think it will happen. So many wondered to God, a God they may not know, God, what's going on? But what if we already knew the answer? What if God gave us clues and signs and prophecies to show us what's to come? Matthew 16, 2, he answered them, when it is evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. Signs of the times. Jesus said there would be signs that we would know, that we should be able to interpret, that we would be able to see. Jesus is essentially telling us signs, signs everywhere, a sign. Can't you read the sign? But where are the signs? Well, we've been told they'll be in the heavens. Blood moons, there'll be eclipses, there'll be signs on earth, there'll be famine and disease and earthquakes and floods and tsunamis and pestilences and rumors of war. There'll be signs among the people, arrogance, pride, rebellion, worship of money, worship of self, lust and pride. There are signs recorded in God's word. The words of the prophet spoken from the Father, the words of Jesus spoken directly from the Son, and the words enlightened and revealed by the Holy Spirit. God wanted to make sure that his followers who are left in the world in end times, which is us, knew what in the world was really going on. That's what this series is all about. Our future is all about a series of appointed times. God has given us clues, dress rehearsals, if you will, for for events that are to come. There are special days outlined in Scripture that foreshadow the details of our future. 
Special days set aside by God. In fact, he said he has holy days. He describes them in Leviticus 23. Seven holy feasts. Seven times a year, I want my people to stop what they're doing and do a super Sabbath, essentially. Seven feasts. They're called appointed times. That's what the, the, the Hebrew translated as feast means, appointed times. God has set aside seven times a year when he wants the Jewish people to stop and do very specific things on those days. And we're gonna see that most of the Jewish people don't realize it, but the things they're doing on those days are exactly foreshadowing the life of Jesus the Messiah. And we'll talk about that. These special days commanded by God are actually signs that point to the Messiah and outline God's plan of redemption. By studying these seven feasts and some signs, we're gonna understand what's going on and what God is doing. We're gonna learn that God has a prophetic clock in the seven feasts, four pointing to the events in Jesus' life that have already been fulfilled, and three point to events that are gonna come up in our life in the future. So when people say, what's going on? It's actually God is keeping his promise exactly as he revealed it in the scriptures. What we're seeing is exactly what the scriptures said we'd see. We know what's going on because he told us. That's what we're gonna be studying for the rest of this year. We're gonna spend the rest of this year learning about what God's word says about our future. We're gonna make sure that we know all in the world that's going on. We're gonna start for the first seven weeks looking at the appointed feast, these, these moments that God said, I want you to set these aside because they're holy days and on those days, certain things will likely happen. We're gonna see that those seven feasts actually tell the story of Jesus. And we're gonna discuss what's truly going on around us, how Satan plans to destroy us and how that's being manifest every night on the news. We're gonna open the book of Revelation and learn line by line what God wanted to show us about the days ahead. Now, some of you who are remnant oldies, you're gonna go, hey, we did that. Yeah, we did it about six years ago, five years ago. We did appointed times about nine years ago. And they're more relevant. I've had more people ask me to re-preach this series than any other series we've ever done. So we're gonna do it this year because we're now even four years closer than we were before, and I need to make sure that all of our new folks understand very clearly what God has said in Scripture and what He hasn't. It's going to take a year, and it begins today. So I encourage you, invite your friends. I don't know a single person on this planet who isn't curious about what's to come and even curious what God says about it, even if they don't follow God. So I want to start today by looking at these feasts. Leviticus 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim them as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. God went to Moses, he said, look, I've got an idea, it's not yours. It's my idea, it's what we're gonna do, it's what I want to do. I'm setting aside appointed days, seven of them. And you're gonna proclaim them as holy convocations, holy days, holy gatherings of the people. Okay, not your idea, not man's idea. This is God saying they are my appointed feasts for you. They are appointed times given to the Jewish people. 
They are God's special days. Convocation means a gathering of people for the purpose of rehearsing something. Interesting. Hebrew word for feast is the word moed, which means an appointment, a fixed time, an exact time. God is giving the nations of Israel so they know the patterns of events to come in the seven feasts, each one signifying a significant part in the life of the Messiah, each one a dress rehearsal for an event in the future, shadowing, foreshadowing events to come. Seven feasts that collectively tell a story. Seven feasts, seven days for man to meet with God for holy purposes. Now I want to make some key points before we go too much further. First, these were given to the Hebrew nation. The Jewish nation are God's covenant people. God went to the Jewish people and he said, I want seven days. Second, they relate to the spring and fall agriculture seasons, which we'll see. Each one, one is like, might be with a harvest, the other might be a Thanksgiving feast, but they all correlate with one of the, the gatherings that's happening out in the fields. Third, the timing is based on the Jewish calendar. Fourth, seven feasts typify the sequence, timing, and significance of the, every major event in Jesus' life. Fifth, the Messiah fulfills the feast, so all who follow him are invited to participate. Sixth, every blessing that we hope for comes from the promises found in the Old Testament. And as believers, we are linked to Israel, God's Jewish nation. Seven feasts. Seven biblical number for perfection and completion. The age will come to an end when all seven feasts, what they have prophesied, has come true and the golden age will follow. The seven feasts are Passover. These are in order of the year. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? They occur in order throughout the year. These seven feasts are some of the most strong prophetic in all scripture. Four feasts are in the spring. They're completed prophetically. We can look back 2,000 years and see how God has fulfilled them. Passover speaks of redemption. It predicts the Messiah's death on Calvary. Unleavened bread speaks of sanctification and being buried or set aside. It depicts that the Lord's body would not decay in the grave. First fruit speaks of resurrection. Jesus' triumphant re resurrection over death. Depicts the birth of the church, the Feast of Weeks, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're going to go into all of this. But each one of the feasts represents a key moment and event in Jesus' life. The four spring feasts all deal with the first coming of the Messiah. The three fall feasts have to do with the second coming of the Messiah. The three feasts in the fall are yet to be completed. They're associated with Jesus' second coming. Trumpets, the return of Jesus at his second coming. The day of atonement is the day that the nation of Israel repents and is saved. Tabernacles establishes our home and we come together to share in that in the messianic kingdom. These feasts predict with certainty events that are yet to unfold. The four feasts were already fulfilled. It's likely the last three will be just as literally fulfilled as well. Now, I don't expect you to remember all this. We're going to spend an entire seven weeks on this. 
What I want you to take home is spring feasts represent four events in Jesus's life during his first arrival. Three events are coming in his second arrival. Each feast is a prophetic pointing to something in the life of the Messiah. These feasts are some of the strongest prophetic claims in all of scripture. They point to Jesus as strongly as Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Isaiah, or any other prophet, yet very few churches ever teach on them. Hmm. Many Christian churches want to ignore anything Jewish. It occurs, I think, for two reasons. The first reason is that Satan hates God's people. He hates the Jewish nation. He has from the very beginning. Historically, Jews and now Christians have been persecuted, and he's trying to split the two. It's that simple. Satan has influenced some church leaders to embrace a sinful approach to Scripture. Some churches teach that Christians today should have nothing to do with the feasts. The Jewish celebration should be left in the Old Testament and that everything's been replaced by the New Covenant. They teach a theology that is unfortunately very prevalent and it's called replacement theology. And it goes like this. The Jews rejected Jesus. Jesus got mad. The Jews killed Jesus. And in doing so, lost their status as God's favored people. Jesus destroyed their temple and ended their promise. This false teaching states that followers of Jesus have become the new vine and the Jews are condemned forever with no hope because they killed Jesus. Replacement theology has tried to discount Jewish root and practices and bring a separation between the Christian church and Israel, a separation that is in no manner, no way, no place supported in Scripture. Promises in the scripture are made to both, and it's clear between the church and Israel that there's a contiguous relationship. All God's people were to, in many ways, be together. Every blessing the Christian church enjoys comes out of the covenant and provisions that God made with Israel. And the really sad part is that this position has represented the Christian church for hundreds of years. It's not a new thought. Christians often speak of, her, of Hitler's persecution of the Jews. You know where he learned it? Do you know who Hitler quoted as his source for exterminating the Jewish people? The Bible. Hmm. See, there's been a long history in as soon as Rome was converted to, early, to Christianity in the early 300s, Jews have been persecuted by the Christian church. In 1290, King Edward expelled all Jews from England. In 1492, Queen Isabella and Ferdinand expelled all Jews who would not convert to Catholicism. From Spain, confiscated all that they earned. And we'll come back to that later. They confiscated everything that they had earned from the Jews in 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, who do you think paid for their journey? Hmm, another thought. Early church leaders, Augustine, argued that the Jews should be left alive and suffering as a perpetual reminder of their murder of Christ. Augustine. 
Martin Luther, do you remember him? Protestant Reformation. He wrote in his book on the Jews and their lies. He excoriates them as venomous beasts, vipers, disgusting scum, candors, devils incarnate. He continues to say we're at fault for not slaying them. Guess whose favorite teacher who claimed him as their favorite teacher? It was Adolf Hitler. Hitler, in every one of his writings, writes about Martin Luther's hate of the Jews and how it's every Christian's responsibility to kill them. Anti-Semitism is a cancer. It's a cancer in the history of the Christian church. It is one of the darkest spots we have. Yet clear teaching of the scripture is that Christ's followers are to love and honor Jewish people, Jerusalem, and the Holy Land. We're to love and honor Jewish people. In Romans 11, we're told that blindness in part came to the Jewish people, but clearly there will be a time in the future when they will repent and they will be saved. God's relationship with Israel and the Jewish people is everlasting. Had the early church fathers understood this very simple message from the beginning, the sad legacy of anti-Semitism in the Christian church might have been eliminated and replacement theology could have had the death that it deserved. A second reason why most Christian churches don't teach on the feasts or anything Jewish is that they misinterpret the scriptures. They take a scripture that's been horribly taken out of context to use as validation. It's Galatians 4, verse 9. The context here is that Paul is talking to the Galatians and they're trying to earn their way into heaven. They're trying to do everything themselves. They're trying to earn their way there. So in the context of that, he says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak principles? Do you wish to be enslaved all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. People have used this verse to say we shouldn't be celebrating any of this stuff. And yet that's not the context of the verse. The context is what they base their salvation on. Paul is telling them that routine participation in the feast, going through the routine, doesn't save you. And God has already ordained, we're going to learn that some of these feasts are to be celebrated forever. What Paul is teaching was this, when it comes to your salvation, depend on Jesus and Jesus alone. Galatians were trying to work their way to heaven. If this was written today, I think he would say, hey, don't, don't think that attending on Easter and Christmas is going to get you into heaven. It's the same thing. I do not believe that Paul prohibits Christians from observing appointed times and special feasts. I personally believe that all Christ followers will be blessed by considering the feasts. Does that mean we have to follow them exactly as they're outlined in the Old Testament? No. But what it means is there are seven days a year that God has said, these are my holy days. We need to recognize them in the context of Jesus and what they mean prophetically so we can celebrate who Jesus is and what's coming. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Every scripture, every story. Paul tells us in Colossians that the feasts are a shadow of things to come. Colossians 2.16, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, a foreshadowing, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, the power of the feast is not in the feast itself. 
The power of the feast comes from the fact that it's Jesus himself and his life that is being foretold. And as we study these feasts, it's in my view unfortunate that the Christian church has so little understanding of our Jewish roots. It is actually the origin of Christianity. The early church was completely Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. And in his life, he kept Jewish law. His heritage was traced through the Messianic Jewish line. He fulfilled all the prophecies about the first coming of the Messiah. He died as a Jew. He was resurrected as a Jew. He never converted to anything else. He will return as a Jewish bridegroom to steal away his bride, believers in Jesus. We forget as Gentiles that we were grafted into the Jewish heritage. We become descendants of Abraham only through what our Jewish Messiah did for us. And when we understand Jewish culture, the scriptures start to pop. They start to make sense. Christianity does not exist, and God's salvation plan makes no sense if we ignore our Jewish roots and take it out of context. That is why, as a nation founded on Judeo-Christian principles, we've supported Israel since its birth as a nation. It's not a political thing, it's a biblical thing. In the mid-1960s, Russian minister Khrushchev asked President Lyndon Johnson, a Texan, by the way, why the U.S. was willing to risk so much to support such an insignificant country like Israel. Khrushchev, the leader of Russia, trying to correct LBJ, say, look, you guys are trying to protect Israel. It's going to destroy you. There are 80 million Arabs, 3 million Jews. Khrushchev said, this costs you everything. Okay, now here's the mind-blowing part. This was in my lifetime, okay? LBJ said this. The President of the United States said this. We do it because it is right. Because our God says those who bless Israel will be blessed. Crazy, right? In my lifetime, a president not only quoted Scripture, but actually acted on it and tried to teach it to an atheist world leader. We have gone a long way in the wrong direction. Jesus, or God says in Genesis 12, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Speaking to, to the Jewish people, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the world will be blessed. OBJ continues talking to a Jewish audience this time. He says, our society is illuminated by the spiritual insights of the Hebrew prophets. Most, if not all of you, have very deep ties with the land and with the people of Israel, as I do, for my Christian faith sprang from yours. The Bible stories are woven into my childhood memories as the gallant struggle of modern Jews to be free of persecution is also woven into our souls. The U.S. has been a blessed nation because I believe we've always supported Israel. God's promise in Genesis 12, too, is true. American presidents have strongly, almost always, supported Israel. Warren Harding, his quote, It is impossible for one who studied at all that the Hebrew people, to avoid the faith that they will one day be restored to their historic national home and enter a new and great phase of their contribution to the advance of humanity. Eisenhower, the teaching of their ancient belief is filled with truth for the present day. The health of our society depends on a deep and abiding respect for the basic commandments of the God of Israel. JFK, 
Let us make it clear that we will never turn our backs on our steadfast friends in Israel who must be admired by all friends of freedom. Israel was not created in order to disappear. Israel will endure and flourish. It is the child of hope and the home of the brave. It can never be broken by adversity nor demoralized by success. Jimmy Carter, the United States has a warm and unique relationship of friendship with Israel that is morally right. It is compatible with our deepest religious convictions. George W. Bush, our two nations have a lot in common. When you think about it, we are both founded by immigrants escaping religious persecution in other lands. We have both built a vibrant democracies. Both our countries are founded on certain basic beliefs that there is an almighty God who watches over the affairs of men and values every day. These ties will never be broken. Barack Obama, the United States was the first country to recognize Israel in 1948, minutes after its declaration of independence, and the deep bonds of friendship between the U.S. and Israel remain as strong and unshakable as ever. Donald Trump was very pro-Israel. Biden is dramatically less so. The tide is currently turning U.S. against Israel. It's in the news. It's predicted. It's expected. Anti-Semitism in our culture is now being encouraged and promoted even in church leadership. As a result, I believe our nation, this wonderful experiment in Judeo-Christian democracy, is finished. Not because I said it, but because God said it. It's happening. It happened to the Roman Empire. It happened to Germany. And now it's happening to us. America is under the wrath of God. The word is crystal clear. Those who support Israel will be blessed. Those who don't will be cursed. It's not a political thing. It's a biblical thing. We're living in it. Jerusalem is the city of God. It's the place where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. It's King David's city. Solomon's temple was there. It will always be God's city. According to biblical prophecy, Jerusalem is the past, present, and future of the world. From Jerusalem, Jesus will rule planet Earth one day. And from his kingdom, there shall be no end. God never made that promise to Washington, D.C. or the United States. So our attention to this little country in the Middle East seems to always be amped up. This year, like many years, tension is rising in Israel, but there's something different this time. This time we're beginning to see it more in the context of a weakened United States and a global overtaking of the Muslim world. It's becoming more and more obvious. Now, since we're into an intro into our series, um, I need to talk about one more thing, and I'll try to make it quick, okay? So I want to set up the stage for where we're headed, and I don't want to get into these discussions too much later because I want to explain them now. Okay. God created the heavens and the earth that they reveal his glory. We just read that scripture. We are to embrace astrology, we are to embrace astrology. The study of the stars, the planets, and the universe, it's part of God's creation, and we learn to worship him by studying it. You can be fully centered in God's will, fully engaged in worship while gazing through a telescope, learning about astronomy. Did you ever notice these words in the creation story? Look at this, Genesis 1, 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Why? Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. We're going to unpack that. When we look in the heavens, we see prophetically our future. 
Jesus said in Luke 21, there'll be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Prophet Joel, the sun will be turned to darkness, a solar eclipse, the moon will be turned to blood, a lunar eclipse before the great and awesome day of the Lord. We learn about God through astronomy. If there are signs in the skies, we need to see them. God tells us, study the heavens, study, there's signs there. However, astronomy is completely different from astrology. Astrology is not the study of God's creation. It is believing that created things are your God. It's believing in some source other than God about the truth of your future. From Genesis to Revelation, God condemns astrology, fortune-telling, future-telling. Deuteronomy 4.19, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you'll be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. What he says is, study the creation, worship the creation. I created it, worship me, I'm the creator. Don't worship the creation. Make sure I said that right. Worship the creator, not the creation. Astrology is offensive to God because it attributes to planets, stars, the power that belongs only to him. Many people try to find the will of God by looking at their horoscopes by a means God has not appointed. And throughout the Bible, God tells us he will guide us. We have no need for that. Isaiah 47, 13, you are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They can't deliver themselves from the power of the flame. So this is where we're headed, Lord willing, for the next year or so. Signs are everywhere. God is working out his plan just as he promised in his scriptures. Some of the keys to what happens next lie in the last three feasts. We'll talk about those. Four feasts are fulfilled. Sacrifice of the Passover lamb dead and buried in a tomb, resurrected the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three fall feasts are coming, one representing the trumpet shout, one the repentance of Israel, their surrender and their return back to God, and then the final and gathering of all of us in the millennial kingdom forever. Next week, we're gonna dive into the Passover and its significance, what it means to those who follow Jesus. But it's really sad, we're gonna learn that many Jewish people celebrate the Passover and don't see Jesus in it. It's incredible. Let me close with this. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. What's going on? God is finalizing his plan. He's doing exactly what he said he would do in the scriptures. The signs are everywhere to those who are willing to look. So straighten up, raise your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you did not want your children to misunderstand or not understand what's going on in the world. I thank you that when we read your word and we see it playing out, it affirms our faith. 
but it also shows us that we have nothing to fear. We've been sent here for times such as these. We're here representing you in a dark world that has rejected you, perhaps against a greater obstacle than has ever been on this planet. So God, we stand tall for you. We stand tall on your promises. Help us, God, as we begin this series to open up your prophetic word, to see the truth, to see how many times and how many ways you wanted to make sure we knew what was going to happen through the feasts, through the stars, through the heavens, through the scriptures. So God, we love you. We thank you that we can study this. I pray, God, that you return before we finish. I ask it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.